This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. Kevin, we are back again. We just recorded one. This is how the stars align sometimes. We'll go for two weeks. Man, what a day. I'm just huffing along here. Yeah, we're just a podcast <laughs> podcast marathon here today. Yeah. Making you were looking you're looking well tanned though. Yeah, I am down in I'm still down in Miami. Uh, yeah, I haven't flown anywhere in the two hours between uh, this okay. and the last episode. Okay. So yeah, it's I'm out there trying to get some sun. I'm trying to feel like a human being again. And yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying the city. It is, Good. it's the buzz. Everybody's talking about Miami. Miami's worth checking out. The food's incredible. And I've had some people kind of show me around. Lasad awesome. from, from Twitter is legitimate. The, that, nice. that fellow is like a, uh, he's like a Wikipedia for Miami. He's the guy, he'll pick you up at 10 in the morning. He'll drop you off at eight at night and he will take you around Miami, show you things. He's the guy who's, when he's giving you a tour, he doesn't tell you, just about where you're going he tells you who built the road That's and in wild. what year <laughs> and wild. who they were mobbed up with <laughs> <laughs> that's an important cool. aspect of the story wow that's cool yeah. that sounds awesome yeah. well tonight we're um we're doing a special dark room episode folks who've listened to these before know we uh, occasionally bring someone in to help us uh, take a look back at a subject we've covered and maybe get some fresh insights um, today we're going to be talking about William S. Burroughs, who we covered way back in our first episode when we didn't really have any idea what we were doing, and uh, Anna Kavan, an episode we did when we sort of knew what we were doing. So, um, and to help us out with this, we are joined by a very special guest, Adam Lehrer. Adam is the author of, um, and the reason that this kind of came together is I'd seen some activity of his activity on Twitter, and I, I realized he'd written this book that was right up my alley called Communions. Um, which is, I have read not quite all of it because I'm busy prepping for episodes. And, you know, like most of us, I have a stack of seven <laughs> books, but I've read like three quarters of it and I'm deeply impressed by it. It's perfect for the show, I think. Um, but this is not all Adam does. Adam is also the host of a, of a podcast called System of Systems. Uh, he's a curator in, uh, of the excellent safety propaganda substack. Um, and actually just had a piece come out in uh, Apocalypse Confidential, which um, yes, indeed. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, Blower Bla- we had Blowergeist on not not too long ago talking about Walt Disney. So that was kind of cool to see that little bit of a connection. Yeah, there. I saw the. Uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to the episode, but I, I'm yeah. definitely going to. I love Blower. Thank you. Yeah, he's a, he's he's great. Yeah, yeah, he he was awesome to have on. Um, what else? I, this is the kind of the stuff I dug up on you in terms of what you got going on, Adam. What else would would you say by way of introduction? Um, well, I guess like 
you know, I guess I've, uh, I, I had a career as a visual artist for a while. Okay. Um, and then sort of petered out. I just like ran out of ideas or just like lost confidence in that kind of work. And then I mm. uh, started writing while I was working a really crappy jobs as tour guides and editorial assistants and all these kinds of things just as like a thing to do late at night after long shifts. Mm. And um, I had always written, but I think something kind of happened where I realized that um, like I just got confident all of a sudden. I realized right. that I was perhaps very fucking good at the ups. I just did it. Yeah. I, I realized right. that I was very good. <laughs> I realized that I was very good at this and yeah. It sort of became my main thing. So then I was kind of uh, shopping around criticism to various places, uh, all kinds really, art criticism mainly, because that was kind of the world I was steeped in, but also uh, music criticism, literary criticism. Had some uh, regular writing contracts, actually did uh, a column for the quietest uh, on on experimental oh. noise music that got kind of I mean it was weird for like a split second because I to this day I still get noise people sending me seven inches wanting me to write about them <laughs> but interesting um, but they fired me over uh, let's say ideological differences in a very kind of uh, now kind of infamous way. And then I lost a few other writing contracts in the midst of that. But then I wrote this essay um, where I kind of, it wasn't a revenge essay, but I guess it could kind of look like that, that I self-published on an old website that I used to use. It kind of had a huge renaissance. Hmm. And then ever since then, I've just been able to commandeer my own projects in a way that I don't really need to publish elsewhere. Oh, that's awesome. And throughout all that is how um, the book contract came yeah. about. Yeah, and, and communions. I, I'm not. I'm not blowing smoke, man. It is. It is quite a piece of work. I'm very impressed by it. Um, <clears throat> but I don't want to. So I don't want to try to. I don't want to try to describe what it is when I've got you here. Could you give us kind of, for people who might be interested, what is Communions? Communions is a series of like fragmented experimental texts, fiction and non, but everything sort of layered into one thing. It's neither fiction nor nonfiction. Um, I had this idea for a long time and I had kind of been working on it, uh, as I said, during those days when I was you know, working late shifts, but I was playing around with this idea because I had, I wanted to do uh, an opioid addiction book, not just like any addiction book, like specifically opioid addiction, not just because I was sort of interested in that as a subgenre, whether the aforementioned Burroughs mm -hmm. uh, or even more mass market stuff like train spotting. I just love that stuff. Yeah. But I didn't want to do like, another kind of like train spotting, but set where I grew up in Cape Cod or something. Mm. You know, I just thought that would have been trite. So I started writing these essays where I ended up just like fictionalizing or um, writing these stories really, where I would just start fictionalizing artists that I was obsessed with. And it became clear to me that, cause I think pretty much everybody has fantasies 
or like thinks a lot about what the people whose work they love were actually like. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the genesis of the show kind of. Yeah, so yeah, we're exactly. right there with you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So like yeah. the whole thing was just like a desire to um, get that fantasy space onto the page and create something resembling a novel out of it, all the while kind of, because I, you know, some people are like, oh, I thought you were a critic, but the way I approach criticism is like very theory fictional anyways. Like I, mm-hmm. I create like a, a fake, you know, I create like a lexicon of terms and always sort of incorporate fictional elements. So I don't see any difference in the writing that I do, whether it's fiction, poetry, or criticism and essays, like it all kind of folds into one practice. Mm-hmm. And this book was kind of the, like cementation of that practice or something right on yeah yeah it's 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 real it's really something it for anybody out there who's looking for you know anybody who's i think into this show or anybody who's into some of the artists we talk about of course the other some other folk some other artists that are in there uh you've got a bit on um uh odb and oh, yeah. uh darby crash um, yeah. I can't, can't remember who else, Anna Kavan and William S. Burroughs, who we're, we're, we're going to sort of focus on, but not, you know, exclusively. Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker. And, yeah. Uh, so that was the other cool, hot. that was the other cool thing because, it, you know, could have, you could have just easily focused on just jazz musicians and heroin or just, um, you know, sort of classic rock figures in heroin or whatever. And instead you're, you've kind of swimming through all of these, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah, because heroin is the is the the character. You know, it's right. like the it's like the, both the antagonist and the protagonist, not necessarily the the mediums these people work in. What I was looking for was like, what makes it so seductive uh, mm. as a drug? What what it mainly like the main thing with all of this is it's kind of like encrypted autofiction, right? Like mm-hmm. it's me very much dealing with a part of my life that I haven't wanted to think about in a long time, but felt this kind of lingering need to exercise it. So it's, it's about like opiates, like what role they fulfill mm-hmm. for artists, but for basically everybody. everybody. Right, right. Yeah, no, and there's, so we want to talk about the Burroughs and, and, and the Burroughs kind of bit in here. I shouldn't even say bit because it's, it's, it's <laughs> long enough and it's, it's really well done. And you kind of, so I've been, uh, I mean, there's a reason why the first episode of this show is about William S. Burroughs. He's a guy that I've taken on as, as an influence without even totally understanding why I'm influenced by him necessarily. Um, and the one thing I hadn't, well, you have this bit and it's an idea I kind of want to, I want to talk about here a little bit that Burroughs was, he was reflecting the time sense of heroin addiction in his writing at, at mm. a syntactical level in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I just, I thought that was, that was, that was a, a new insight for me without, I've had a lot of friends and people I know who've been at various stages of opiate addiction, but never experienced it myself, kind of seen it from the outside. And so that was a new insight to me. So do you see, and you see that, how do you see the whole cut up thing playing into that? Well, the, 
What really interests me about Burroughs, well, God, I mean, he is one of my favorite writers. So there's definitely like more than one thing that I find interesting. Yeah. But I've always been fascinated in this like way that his work sort of collapses temporality. Like, like he had a very, like, there, there's like the, 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 the way that like a junkie understands time is almost like time exists in this like self-contained space where it's like, totally disconnected from the rest of the timeline of your life. Like it's like you're in a circular holding pattern. Mm. Um, nothing, you know, and, and, and there's no, within that, there's no real spiritual or emotional growth. So everything just becomes like a flatline construct. Mm. It's, it's, you can't see, you can't even like, like even when I look back on my life, when I was a dope addict, it's almost like all the memories seem fake. Like I have them, Mm -hmm. but there's like this glaze of unreality over the entire thing. And it seems like such an alien experience. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Is that because the, the, the experiences like aren't registering on some level, do you think? What I think it is, is that, and I think this is what Burroughs really captures is that it shrinks down your life to a very narrow pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. So there's waking up, feeling sick, scheming to get enough money, picking up drugs, using, and then you can kind of go back to your day until you yeah. get sick again. But it's yeah. like the pattern is the only sort of like propelling forces in your subjectivity. Right. And with that, like experience doesn't even seem like it's really happening. Like you, you know, I, I, I there's like, there's like um, junkies who talk about like how they met their wife while they were using and now they look back on the memory of meeting their wife and like starting to question themselves. Like, did I, was that even real? Did I feel what she felt? Could I feel what she felt? Like that kind of thing. Right. That's, 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 that's interesting. And, and, and yeah, and this is the kind of thing that you're doing so well in this book that I, I, I think, is this the second or third or fourth layer of the addiction experience that we don't sort of get in many other places? It's just, it's, it's, you know, like, you know, we've all recognized that, 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 that there, it's an issue on like a social level or whatever, but very few people I feel like are, are, are really interrogating the actual experience of it. And so, yeah, this, and this opened doors for me in thinking about this and sort of made me think about friends that I've kind of lost or either actually, you know, have passed away because of this or, or, or just have passed out of my life and who knows what they're, what, you know, where they, where they are now. But um, talking a little bit more about Burroughs, what is, so what is where like where did you, where do you meet Burroughs in your life? Like, what was the first thing you read? Um, what was that relationship with that with his work like? You know, he was definitely as far as like um, avant garde writers, artists, etc. I think he was one of the first names that I ever heard, mm-hmm. just because um, you know I was born in like '87, so mm-hmm. when I was really little, I was already like into Nirvana and and stuff like that. And Kurt Cobain would like reference William Burroughs a lot. And then, um, so he's this kind of name that I got familiar with. 
I didn't end up reading him myself until I was, when I was 14, I got a copy of Lester Bangs' collection, mm -hmm. Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung. Mm -hmm. And that thing kind of became like a Bible. And I would just like make notes of everything that Lester was referencing in these essays that I was totally hypnotized by. And at some point I saw Burroughs' name and I said, man, I really gotta, I gotta, I gotta track this down. Uh, first book I read was actually Junkie. Okay. Um, which honestly, back then, it didn't impress me so much. Like, I kind of remember being disappointed by it somehow. And it wasn't until I was about um, like 18 or so that I then read The Naked Lunch and then I read the Nova Trilogy kind mm -hmm. of like right in a row. Mm -hmm. And it totally like, blew my it totally blew yeah. my mind like it was everything that i wanted it to be and then some yeah junkie is sort of if if i could see that where if like you've heard these references to this guy and he starts to get this allure and then you read junkie you're like ah eh, well yeah it's not there's it doesn't feel as special and then and then you encounter things like naked lunch and and, and the nova work and it's it's totally. it's unlike anything you've ever really come across <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, you know, Junkie, he kind of establishes um, the the voice he often used, which was like this kind of very hard-boiled urban yeah. voice, like detectives, agents, all this cool stuff. Um, but by Naked Lunch, he's using that as like the formal material that he then perverts and yeah. kinks. And then by the time you're in Nova Express, you have to like totally suspend your disbelief and just let the language kind of course throughout your bloodstream, so yeah. to speak, and give yeah. yourself over to it because it's so fractured and fragmented. And then, um, and then just like be, I mean, the way that he was able to, I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated in the cut up, even when it doesn't mm. work, you know, <laughs> just because yeah. like, the idea, I mean, it's very influential on the safety propaganda project too, which is to like take pre-existing ideas, chop them up, deconstruct them, demystify them of ideology, and then weaponize that, that information as your own form of like counter psyop propaganda or ah. whatever. You know, all that great stuff. Oh, this is yeah. great. This is what I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you to expand on the term you describe yourself as a counterintelligence agent, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you have, I've seen you describe it. And yeah, I, yeah, I, okay. Well, and it sounds like you kind of already explained it, but like, I, you know, Kevin and I, I'm sure, I know I, when I came across that term, my eyebrows raised and I'm sure if Kevin saw that he would, he would feel much the same because I think <laughs> the first time I came across you on Twitter was you had a thread and I tried to find it and I didn't have much luck. Twitter search is sometimes kind of weird. Oh, where yeah. You, I know what you, you're talking about. You, know, <laughs> you were sort of going, correct me if I'm wrong, you were sort of like people were throwing an artist at you and you were sort of explaining why they were an intelligence <laughs> asset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, a psyop to one degree right. or another. Right, yeah, that right. was pretty awesome because <laughs> I, I was just like, because I'm like, I'm like, yeah. yeah. I'm like really shadow banned on Twitter, you know? So it's right. like really hard to get the engagement that I used to. Yeah. So I was just thinking to myself, like, I wonder if I could bust the algorithm 
if I just throw this question out and then like four days later, I'm still frantically responding to people asking about Stephen Malcolmus or, right. or like Flava Flav or whatever. Right. right. But like, but like um, my response to every single person was just like, yeah, yeah, that's a psyop. But like right. not out of like any actual pre-existing knowledge but just like to make the point that pretty much everything every idea every person every artist yeah can is, be weaponized to yeah. some ideological ends oh no i remember reading it and like for the first like three or four i was like you know you, I, I bought it like everything you said i was like yeah that's exactly right that must and then eventually i was like oh wait come on he doesn't like <laughs> yeah that's the best yeah <laughs> And then, so I went and saw uh, Tragedy of Macbeth yesterday. And then oh, yeah. it, it made me think like, wait, are the Coen brothers a PSYOP? Probably. I right? mean, yeah, I think so. <laughs> but uh, I actually really loved that movie. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, it's quite good. It just made me yeah. think like, wait, if, they, if they're a PSYOP, I feel like everything must be a PSYOP. Yeah, well, you Brad, know, probably, I mean, yeah, yeah, go on. Uh, I'm just going to say they're probably zionists you know working for israel or well, something. well that could be right. sure yeah or they're they're working for the state of minnesota right yeah exactly <laughs> some reason nobody can quite Fargo, figure out North 3m Dakota. if you yeah trace yeah. it all back yeah well there is that thing that we're always talking about brad the mfa programs in iowa and, and the spooks in yeah. iowa and cia yeah. and there's well, always some edge of truth to, to this well business. it's 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 funny because i found out about all that the 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 cia involvement in building mfa the first mfa program which then became the model for the rest of them i found out about that like after getting my mfa and that was like wait a second am i an intelligence asset like <laughs> i mean kind of you know kind louis of Althusser, yeah like louis Althusser would define an mfa program as a ground zero sort of ideological state apparatus no doubt about it no sure, question sure there's yeah, no question yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Luckily, luckily, I, you know, it hasn't, luckily nobody from my MFA program except Kevin here will even talk to me. So I'm not that, you know what I mean? I'm like a disavowed asset. I not guess. intelligent enough for, yeah. for intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hey man, if you can't be to the far right of the midwit meme, you might as well be to the far left. That's what I say. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the counteragency of the avant-garde, it's just like an idea that I came up with and got obsessed with this idea of like proposing or like you to be recruited into the counteragency of the avant-garde, you have to be a sentient of Check. the information war being waged against you mm-hmm. and be willing to risk, um, sometimes really intense and cruel scrutiny mm. so you can kind of beat back those narratives and sort of, um, you know, open the floodgates of other people's minds. I'm actually writing this thing, right? And I'm trying to put together like the first few posts of uh, safety propaganda for the year. And I'm trying to have these like real doozies. So mm. one is going to be like, a metafictional narrative about my recruitment into the quote-unquote counter-agency of the avant-garde. Okay. The other one is the 200 bullet point 
safety propaganda conceptual manifesto, which is just like <laughs> 200 things or ideas or people or historical events that somehow influence my thinking about this stuff. Interesting. Well, we, we will definitely keep an eye out for that. That's thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds interesting. One thing I wanted to ask you talking about Burroughs more. OK, well, first off, are you into the Cities of the Red Knight trilogy? Yes. Re- yeah. OK. I, yeah, I it's amazing am, stuff. Yeah, I am in awe of that whole that whole series, and I, I feel like I rarely come across people who read it. I, I don't know if it's because it's not the cut up and it's not Naked Lunch, so who cares or what? But that felt to me like a refinement of the whole. Like he kind of he kind of evolved through cut up and was like, well, I gotta well, let's let's, let's kind of take those concepts and ideas and the time sense and all of that, but then like let's make it so you can actually read it through without it being completely fragmented. Because I struggle with the Nova Trilogy stuff in terms of like, why read one page over any other sort of? It's, it's a little discombobulating to me as a reader. Definitely. It, 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 yeah, it's like one step too far. And I feel like the Cities of the Red Knight was like the sweet spot for all of this, this approach. So. Yeah, you know, it's like Cities of the Red Knight. I feel like he... You know, him and Miller corresponded mm. a little bit mm-hmm. throughout the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe Mailer, who I also really love, yeah, me too. Um, had some kind of uh, degree of influence on Burroughs because Mailer, too, could create these, like, massive hallucinogenic mm-hmm. stories yeah. that were still very legible and like very American and right. like very easy to read and fun to read. Yeah. So I think like, um, it's almost like Burroughs, like let the Nova trilogy be these like self-contained hallucinatory works that are like very indicative of kind of like his late stage addiction. Mm. And it's almost like Cities of the Red Knight is his recovery novel, looking back on that madness and able to make some sense of it. Uh, yeah, no, you hit the net. That was what I was going to ask is what is the relationship between that sort of stylistic project uh, uh, trajectory and the, the addictive... There's the one fascinating thing about Burroughs. It's like very few people, and you talk about this in your book, but, and I've thought about it before, very few people managed to stay addicted that long right yeah without dropping out of it yeah. or dying or whatever right right and, burning and, out yeah yeah and so living living that deep into it would <laughs> whatever benefits and disadvantages exist in being addicted to junk he had to have experienced both of them right if there is some creative advantage burroughs certainly found it yeah, um, I mean, I think with Burroughs, like, you know, in the Barry Miles uh, biography of him, which is, fuck, which is really, really great, mm-hmm. and everybody should read, right. there's like all sorts of talk about him hanging out with Kerouac and Ginsburg, and they always saw him as like this sage elder, mm-hmm. like insanely smart, uh, incredible conversationalist, but he wasn't actually producing much work yet. Mm-hmm. But he had this sort of like mystical dimension. And the way I like, I really kind of reject the idea that like heroin, especially, is um, like a creative force mm-hmm. because it's so destructive. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it really just ruins lives to such mm-hmm. an extreme degree. 
-hmm. But I think like with someone like Burroughs and also like Artaud, who also gets fictionalized in communions, Mm -hmm. these guys were like very kind of naturally mystically inclined, Mm. almost like sorcerers or sages or druids. I love the word druid. Yeah. And, you know, I think what heroin might have done for someone like them is that it it's so corporeally it's a very corporeal drug like it tethers you to your body it's like ant it's like the opposite of transcendent Mm -hmm. so it allowed these guys with their heads always up in the sky pondering big ticket items so to speak to come back down to reality, but still with this kind of outside, like it allowed them to be both present and outside all at the same time, which gave us these like incredibly rich perspectives on mm. modernism and then postmodernism. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I can, I can, I can see that. I could see that it, it, it sort of bringing you back down to earth in a certain way. Not, not as a recommendation that anybody else do this. But yeah. The more, oh, no way. Yeah. Always yeah. never do heroin. Right. right. No, def- I mean, the thing yeah, is yeah. now you can't even like do heroin anymore. Like, I well, talk about this sometimes. Like I, when I quit, you can still get like good, clean, heroin not to glamorize yeah. it but now people are just dying left and right because it's all fentanyl, it's all fentanyl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah which is which uh yeah it is it is kind of it is a nightmare right i mean it's uh <laughs> well adam uh just for for full disclosure i uh obviously i'm a playwright right and our toe yeah i recommend everybody read the theater and it's double and we have yet to do the Arto episode. Oh yeah. We'll get there. So you, yeah. You sound like somebody who might be uh, possibly a, a good, uh, could help us out. Uh, yeah. Oh, might be man. able to help us with that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wanted to see your, I wanted to see your play. You have a new one out, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can go to moderationplay.com. It's still, it's still up and online, but I, sometimes people will creep into my DMS and ask me about screenwriting or playwriting and this happened recently. Somebody on the Bird website said, ah, you know, I have an idea for kind of a radio play type thing. What do you recommend? And I said, read some of Mammoth's theory, read Three Uses of the Knife, uh, read mm. The Empty Space, Peter Brook, and then read, I always recommend The Theater and It's Double from Artaud. And of course, right now, uh, Artaud's essay, The Theater and the Plague, is so apropos because he's writing about so much more than just theater uh, when he's oh, writing. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Arto yeah. is an absolute genius and a freak and just a really exciting like figure in literary history, I think. Well, it's going to be really fun when we do that episode. So we might yeah. knock on your door for a little, uh, little yeah, that would be that great. One. I'll try yeah. and refrain from Arto fanboying and save it for the next time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. All right. My man. Well, you know, the other thing is I have a, you know, my, my very own, my father overdosed on an opioid when I was very young and died. Mm. So, I, mean, I have, Oh my God. Very, I am yeah. so sorry to hear. No, this. no, no, it's fine. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, worth mentioning that and this stuff i mean it it really truly destroys lives the thing that Mm. got my dad was a prescription opioid that never should have been on the market it was something called propoxyphene is um darvon darvaset eli Lilly. uh there were people warning uh the fda and and the other whatever organizations in the late 70s that this thing is not very effective at killing pain it's highly addictive and at the end of the bell curve it'll just kill people if people take too much or if they mix it with alcohol and they put it on the market anyway and it stayed in the market for decades 
and uh, got my dad in 86. And then they only took it off the market in the UK in 2005, but then in the US in 2010. And it's like, when you read about this, and I'm not trying to hijack the episode, but I, you know, I have to mention it. Um, uh, Absolutely. When you read about this, you just go, wait, so it's not very effective at killing pain. <laughs> it's not even good at what yeah. it does. Highly a- addictive. And if you take more than you should, there's a, uh, you're rolling the dice every single time and they put that poison out on the market. So I'm an old school, I'm not a big science truster as a consequence. Yeah, yeah Kevin, oh, Kevin correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds <laughs> like you might be speaking ill of pharmaceutical the, of companies. Of big pharmaceutical companies. Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, get... <laughs> sorry, go ahead. <laughs> not at all. No, go ahead, Adam. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, we could obviously relay this back to the big thing that's been happening around, the only thing that's been happening yeah. around us these last two years. But I'll just say, I think Big Pharma is satanic. I <laughs> All think right. they own Let's go. everything. And mm-hmm. that's the only reason we, I mean, think of how delusional and psychotic the idea of, uh, trust science like where like science becomes like this religious force and not like a discussion and conversation and case studies and research and like yeah you know it's like it's like imagine albert einstein being like here's the theory of relativity it's science sorry you have to accept it now (laughs) right right. yeah um, Yeah. yeah but i grew up like smack dab I was, you know, in the middle of the opioid epidemic. I graduated high school in 2006, grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where it was getting, where it was raging. Like, Mm -hmm. but at the time, no one was really acknowledging it, certainly not in the media. And people were already dying. I'll just say it like this, you know, usually there's like this typical trajectory of drug experimentation that I won't say healthy, but maybe is a little more normal. Like you try cannabis, maybe then you experiment with psychedelic drugs. You get to college and you do coke or ecstasy, whatever. Where I grew up, it was you do cannabis. And then the second thing I tried was Oxycontin. Yeah. Um, and even uh, my doctor, <laughs> pediatrician and general practitioner in my town you can google this his name was dr michael brown in 2005 he was arrested i remember driving by with his friends and there were all these protesters uh, of families who had lost their children to the opioid epidemic and this guy ended up doing 10 years because at that point he was prescribing um one third of all of all the prescriptions for Oxycontin in the state. And Whoa. back then it seemed like justice. Whoa. Now looking back on it, it really feels like he was just falling on his sword for a trend that was rampant yeah. amongst a lot of the medical community. Wow. Yeah, there's, you know, a couple heads roll, but, you know, there's a I, lot more out I there. I think the word crisis is appropriate and at the same time a bit of gaslighting. Because my yeah. dad dropped dead in 1986. This is a, it's a fixture been, of American life yeah, and it has been for decades. So yeah, calling yeah. it a crisis is ridiculous. Um, I mean, yeah, you need a word for how urgent it is, but it's not like it just suddenly happened. This goes back uh, decades. No, yeah. they've, been, um, they've been flooding 
society with opiate drugs for a long time. Yeah. It's, you know, still like the idea that, you know, there were these pen pushing doctors giving people fentanyl lollipops, which, which sounds oh. crackhead. Like who right. has a fentanyl lollipop for <laughs> vague knee pain? That's such a crackhead thing to do. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's both, uh, it's both patronizing and, you know, it's patronizing at the same time. Right. Right. There's exactly. something symbolic about putting it at a lollipop. It's like, oh my you're God. a child. And I'm gonna give you, ugh. This makes me, you know, this kind of brings us something I wanted to maybe ask if it, it sort of came up is I've seen Burroughs, obviously Burroughs wrote the book Junkie and, and, you know, there's interviews with him about specifically just talking about his addiction. And I hear him, I've heard him talk about it from seemingly different, maybe even contradictory angles, but I, he has, he, there is there were times where he talked about it as a disease of exposure. What is your take on like addiction as a disease? Is it a disease? Is it just a matter of exposure? Like how do you see all that discussion? I do not think Burroughs would be using disease as like, um, as people in the program would perhaps where it's like a literal disease. Uh, I would relate it back to his infamous quote, language is mm-hmm. a virus. So if disease yeah. is an addiction of exposure, it's like um, an almost sort of pre-written conditioned response to modernism, mm-hmm. um, where the world's changing so rapidly, you find yourself at the mercy of ideological power centers that are constantly brainwashing and shaping your behavior, addiction becomes a kind of, um, a kind of crutch uh, for dealing with just like a world in, in rapid flux. I mean, um, yeah, you talk about you talk about this whole time sense of it, it narrowing everything down to the the corporate the corporal and the, the, like getting you down. And when you're in a world of chaos, that may seem like a salve to all absolutely. that chaos, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think of it right now. I just uh, fentanyl just became the number one killer okay. of people from 18 to 45. Um, you know, mm-hmm. quadrupling. COVID deaths as right. inflated as they already are and doubling car crash deaths. Like unreal. Yeah. Unreal stuff. So, I mean, it does seem like it follows it. You know, we just said that they're not so great at actually treating centralized pain. What they are, right. what they are very good at is just making things seem a little simpler, a little quieter. Right. That, mm-hmm. And that, um, that's sort of like if I had, um, uh, you know, I'll still take, uh, the thing I still take sometimes is psychedelic drugs. Mm. And I took mushrooms once and I ended up in a really bad thought spiral thinking about addiction <laughs> and mm. opiates and like what it was that was so attractive about it to me because I, you know, I didn't have a particularly unhappy childhood. My parents weren't perfect, but they loved me. And that's a lot more than a lot of people get. Yeah. But I think I just had this, I've, I've always just had a very loud like inner voice mm. and not like a depressive person, but sort of an anxious person. And I really think heroin, opiates, whatever, they have this like sort of 
really inner clarity to their effects mm. that becomes the thing you crave more than anything else. I even remember this feeling of like, you know, I'd shoot, I'd shoot smack and I, I remember everything on the inside would just get a little quieter. And, you know, I ended up being a very like high functioning drug addict, I think, because I'm like, I was constantly thinking of ways to incorporate it into, it was less about dropping out of life than just like easing myself into life. You know, I remember when I, when I finally got clean and admitted to myself and to people that I cared about that I had a huge problem. No, a lot of people couldn't believe it. Cause at the time I was like, um, you know, I was like, I, w I was like, I looked like Bruce Lee. I was like 155 pounds, but I was like deadlifting like 495 <laughs> because I would just like shoot dope and then work out for like three hours a day wow, wow. so um you know they, they they are still i think misunderstood to a degree in the popular imagination sure. and 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 addicts sometimes uh, use it for reasons unbeknownst to other people yeah no i can i can definitely see that and you're talking about the the relationship to a sort of anxiety i mean we're sort of living in the age of anxiety so you can see you can kind of see exactly the, the problem and what's what the problem is trying to address in the individual psychology as you know mirror images of each other i think yes you know it's 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 clearly a, it's clearly a problem but there's there's so few people saying like well why is everybody on this right <laughs> yeah. right absolutely like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah drugs are politics with without a doubt yeah without yeah. question yeah you know i um I stopped reading philosophy like eight months ago. <laughs> like, good, uh, good job. I think, I'm, I'm yeah, like, I, uh, you know, because I, I, I would sometimes go through these periods where I'd like read way too much and just get like depressed about it. But um, one of the more recent philosophers who really had a big influence on my thinking was uh, Zygmunt Bauman, particularly his text Liquid Modernity, which is sort of. Um, defining the processes and changes as the, as the industrial economy makes way for the financial economy, makes, makes way for the gig economy. And this feeling of instability and lack of cohesive structure that sort of plagues us all. I think in that sort of culture, which I absolutely believe is correct, we're living in some kind of liquid modernity, I think mm -hmm. maybe hard dr opiate drugs can give the user a sense of that structure that is otherwise absent from their lives. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I, I will have to look into this liquid modernity. I've, I've heard that term sort of floating around, but never really grokked it. That's interesting. But then I'd yeah. have to read philosophy. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the Wikipedia. Entry, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe I'll there start, you go. There. Yeah. I'll start yeah. there. But so this brings me, I wanted to talk about Anna Kavan a little bit too, uh, you know, a little bit of a lesser known figure um, than Burroughs, uh, but uh, an unbelievable talent. I mean, I kind of discovered her shortly before we started doing this show and just sort of oh, cool. became enamored with her work. Um, I mean, how would you, how would you characterize what Burroughs in the like the sort of Burroughs heroin relationship and the 
Annika Vaughn heroin relationship? Is it the, does it mean the same thing to them? Or is this, are we seeing two different looks at the same, uh, at the same thing? Definitely different. I think that Burroughs, um, even when an irredeemable junkie kept like a, he kept critical of the kind of lifestyle that he was living. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Anna Kavan, she was so wounded mm-hmm. that she, I think she very much did have a romantic relationship mm-hmm. with the drug in the absence of like real kind of romantic and sexual partners. It seemed that heroin was the thing that gave her joy. Um, another character who I fictionalize in the book is the screenwriter of Bad Lieutenant, Zoe Lund, who oh. literally um, thought of heroin as her savior. And I think Anna Kevan probably had a similar relationship with these drugs to that. And not to mention the fact she had she she kept people around her that enabled her addiction to an extreme degree. And otherwise, mm-hmm. never really, you know, unlike William S. Burroughs, she had a lot less uh, experience, you know, being holed up in Tangier without a drug source and mm. having to kick and sweat it out. Yeah, so she never her, had she yeah. never had to, like, delve into the underbelly, or at least not as much as Burroughs did. Right. She like. kind of kept up a respectable petty bourgeois lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, Burroughs had money, but he also, like, you know, ran out of money a lot. And Burroughs um, kind of liked being a criminal, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's like, um, he liked being wrong. Like he liked, yeah. <laughs> you know, his sexual relationships were like, they were more hot to him if they were like really wrong or disgusting in some ways. Right, right. Um, whereas Anna Kavan has this kind of like petty bourgeois respectability, working at a writing magazine, mm-hmm. Um and, and, her do- and, her, and her doctor is giving her these drugs, right? Right. And that's yeah. what I ended up being really, really fascinated in. Yeah. And, her relationship with Dr. Bluth. Yeah. And your chapter, the, the section of communions on, on Anna Kavan is, is a, a scene that involves Dr. Bluth. Dr. <laughs> Bluth is somebody who I would like to do some a more deep digging on him. I, I kind of glanced across the surface of Bluth when we did our Kavan episode, but, but I mean, he's sort of like, he's sort of like the, uh, art world. What was that guy? Uh, Dr. Feelgood back in the, whenever that was, who was giving like all of the rock stars and stuff drugs. Yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. He was sort of, he was sort of like that, but for like a slightly more sophisticated art crowd a few Absolutely. decades earlier. Yeah. He's just doping everybody up. Um, and your your chapter on with showing that relationship between them is is masterfully done. Um, Thank you. Yeah, um, Bluth. This is one thing I wanted to think about, and now I get to talk to somebody who knows Kavan and knows Burroughs. Is Doctor Bluth and Doctor Benway are these like two of the same archetype, or <laughs> or what? Because when I read your section, I was like, this guy is Dr. Benway a little bit. That's funny. Yeah. You know, I mean, Dr. Benway is so sadistic. Yeah, Bluth, I guess, and doesn't like, quite have that. Yeah, I don't think Bluth was a sadist so much as he was deeply delusional. Mm. Um, and, you know... God, a lot. I, I read um, Jeremy Reed's biography of Anna Cavan, 
preparing to write this thing. And he was ultimately, I felt that he was being a little, as great as Jeremy is, I thought he was mystifying the creepiness of their relationship to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very like positive on, on Bluth at the end of the day. Like he believes that Bluth was sincerely treating his patient in a way that he felt helped her work. Whereas I think there is a lurid dimension to um, Dr. Bluth, which is that he obviously knew he was enabling a deeply damaged person's addiction, but did so as a failed artist, feeling like he got to be somehow a part of this great artist's work. Um, Like, I really think he, like the idea that you would just do this without even if it was unbeknownst to him i the the idea that you would do this purely out of the goodness of your heart seems a bit um too easy on humankind and the ways yeah. that we are yeah and um yeah i think bluth probably like was a little narcissistic and thought that he was like facilitating this great artist and and lacked the attention up for that yeah, I think the delusional point is good. And, and I can almost see, you know, back in the, their relationship started uh, in the 40s, right? Or something yeah, it like. went on um, from the 40s all the way until when Bluth died. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I guess at that time, the sort of history of, it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of the history of opiates up to that point, right? Like, this is before you know junkies in movies before before it's there's sort of a stereotype of the junkie i I think i guess i mean i didn't live back then so i don't know what people's perceptions of were of a heroin addict or a morphine addict right certainly at some point you'd think if he was doing this altruistically after the first you know few times he gave it to her you'd think his eyes would open up a little bit but right yeah yeah it's a, yeah. it's, that's interesting. And, and, and yeah, the, the idea that the delusional nature and that he's, you know, there's some kind of sexual component to it as well, that he's sort of giving this to her. Um, it, it's all very creepy. <laughs> yes, exactly. And to me, yeah. the idea that even if they didn't consummate their relationship, which they might not have because Anna yeah. Kevin was so kind of asexual in a way. Yeah. Um, they definitely, to me, were probably in love. Mm. Um, and this was like, like, you know, this is how I imagined it in the book. It could just be my own perversion, of course. But like, mm. um, you know, I, I sort of, depict and and uh visualize the scene as like a kind of sexual consummation with her spiking up you know and that's another weird thing is like he used she used to just like she had i mean if like a junkie today stumbled upon anna cabin's you know medicine cabinet they would be like (laughs) it'd be like striking because she like stockpiled ounces and ounces of heroin yeah, she was worried yeah. about running out, right? I mean, she was worried of about course. Bluth dying the, and all that. Yeah, Bluth dying, and then um, the new there were legal regulations slowly being implemented all throughout her life. Right. Um, right. But Bluth still showed up every day. Oh my god! To shoot her up and give her more, not to well, and like, also like amphetamines too. 
Wow. That, that's like a uh, priest who makes house calls and your book is called Communions, correct? It, it, yes. It's like uh, you have an elderly person who can't make it to mass and you have these, not necessarily the priest, but you'll have people who will come and administer uh, the host, the sacrament to people door to door. It has that kind of a vibe, almost like a ceremonial uh, process. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, the the perhaps cruel, perhaps interesting irony throughout all of this is that I don't think maybe, I think maybe she did need the drugs to actually work. Um, and that uh, I think the ultimately like the, the belief that Bluth had was that she was so sort of damaged and depressive that, you know, if they did make her feel better, if they did uh, help her work, then whatever, then he was going to be okay with that. But, um, you know, there's no denying that the 30 year heroin habit can wreak all sorts of habit, uh, yeah. havoc on your body. And there's no way to, like, I don't, I'm not like trying to judge or whatever, but it's like, uh, I think it's hard not to read some sort of bizarre perverse, um, something wrong in there. There's something wrong in that dynamic that's very, very interesting to me, uh, oh, yeah. aesthetically and literarily. Yeah. 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 Uh, one last, one kind of last thing, and I think we can kind of wind down here, but I want to talk just briefly about Kavan's novel, Ice, um, yeah. which again is something I kind of came in, I came to, I suppose, a little late. I mean, I read it in 2020 um, and was blown away by it. I, I it's we just uh we just had a conversation um with Hagulian about Franz Kafka. We had done a previous episode about Franz Kafka and we were talking about the the way in which the the work feels Kafka's work feels allegorical but kind of actually isn't. It's almost like a trick of the eye that it's that it's allegorical. What do you think Ice in the novel Ice is there an allegory to be found in the phenomena of ice in the book? Is it, I've read, you know, what felt to me like very surface level interpretations that, oh, the, the whole ice thing in the novel ice is Annika Vaughn talking about her addiction. Like, wh what do you think of that? I think the, I think there's like, I mean, she was such a drug addict, like that mm. there's no way that she wasn't writing about drugs to a okay. degree, even if she, even if she claims that she wasn't, to me, mm -hmm. I read, because it's like, I mean, you know, just like in terms of sheer plot, it's very obviously not about drugs, right? Right, but, right. Um, but like, Ice itself, my, it reminds me of what I was talking about before with Burroughs and the sort of temporal loop of addiction. She's frozen in place. She was this kind of mm. broken, damaged woman um, shattered by this traumatic relationship with her mother, shattered from this violent first marriage that she was forced into. And then she starts using heroin forever. Right. And I think um, you can kind of read this image of ice as just like life being frozen in place. Like she, would, she was just trapped. Mm. Not trapped, but choosing to live inside this sort of frozen existence with minimal degrees of growth or spiritual awareness. You know, it's like just, uh, just this glaze of, 
of sameness, of singularity that coursed throughout her entire life. Yeah, and I guess if, if life has beaten you up enough, and it, it did beat up uh, Anna Kavan for sure, um, you can see the appeal of like, I just want to do something so nothing changes anymore. Like, yeah. I, just want to, I just want everything to freeze into a block of ice and live in that. Like, I, I mean, I can see, I can understand why a person, I can be sympathetic for why a person would, would want that, I suppose. Yeah. You know, uh, Brad, we need to do an episode about a famous clown or comedian <laughs> or something after uh, it's called Kafka. Art of Dark. It's called Art oh. of Darkness, Kevin. All right. It is. We talked, it is we talked about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz last yeah, time. So that was know. nice. That yeah. was a little, a little lighter. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, I think okay. we need to get on to the Patreon and I want to hear what you have for us there, uh, Brad. But first I want to say, Adam, thank you. This was very this illuminating and we're going to do another 20 or 30 minutes. So I'm, I'm grateful for your time. And look, I think maybe we, we might chat with you about the Arto episode when that comes around. I think you'd be potentially like a great wingman for that. If you're, if yeah. you're game in the future. Oh, absolutely. That would be awesome. And cool. this was a this was a blast, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, quick, yeah. For uh, sure. Give your mm-hmm. quick give your plugs, Adam. You know, where can people find you? You know, what to look out for, all that. Uh sure. You can uh find my Substack project uh at safetypropaganda.substack.com. Um and we also have a store for the zines and books I'm putting out these days called safetypropaganda.store. Uh, System of Systems, the podcast that I host with a rotating set of my homies is uh, systemofsystems.patreon.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. And in the After Dark, when we come back, we're going to talk about Burroughs and the intelligence community. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Look forward to that. Uh, Follow us up. What is it, Kevin? Artofdarkpod.com slash Patreon. Is that right? I think you can go to patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. You can find us on the... Yeah, put my slash in the wrong spot. Yeah. You're all right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been shooting up, Brad. You've been... uh, Yeah. Uh, I hope not. The moral of the story, kids, is never do heroin. Never do heroin. Stay away. Not good. Drugs are bad, okay? Yeah. 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 Not good. All right. We'll be back. Thank you.